Well, it's a great joy to see you here this morning. Are you ready to dig in? I have a full day planned and we're excited about all that God has for us today. And uh, so if you'll turn to the very set first set of notes here, we will get started this morning. You know, I'm always amazed at God's patience with us. He is endeavoring to develop with all of us uh, leadership and, and effectiveness in our ministry. Anyone who has had people that you've been developing for leadership know that it's sometimes a bit of a rocky road in trying to help folks. And uh, God is certainly patient with us. It reminds me of a story I heard about a railroad agent in India. And he had been reprimanded for making uh, decisions without orders from headquarters. And so one day, uh, his superior, who had uh, reprimanded him, received the following startling telegram. Tiger on platform, eating conductor. Wire instructions. (laughs) Well, God has a way to be able to step by step develop us. And you see it through the relationships that he has with his people all throughout the Old and the New Testament. And there is no better example of that than the story of Moses. You know, last night we looked at Exodus chapter 3, the real the key passage for our theme here this week, how that you have a man who for 40 years had wandered in the desert, had the lowliest of all occupations, having been groomed to be the Pharaoh, and then the despised position of a shepherd. That's how any Egyptian would have viewed what he was doing. And so by the time we meet him at Exodus 3, my opinion is that he had pretty much given up hope. He had pretty much uh, lost his dream, lost his vision. He knew he had blown it and was very much sensing his helplessness. And when God Almighty appears in the fire in that burning bush and he realizes that he is on holy ground and he bows before God and then hears the commission from the great I am that I am to go and deliver the people to be the leader that God wanted him to be, we don't find a really exciting answer for Moses. How can I do it? I don't know how to speak. Every excuse he could give. And he was sincerely giving them. And you know, it's amazing. As you progress through the book of Exodus, you go from him questioning his usefulness to the wonderful statement that we'll be looking at in a few minutes in Exodus chapter 33, verse 11. And the Lord spake unto Moses face to face as a man speaketh with a friend. Folks, that's shouting ground. Here's a defeated, hopeless, once aspiring leader. Now, seen by God himself, given under inspiration of the mighty spirit of God, that he had a friendship with God that was an intimate face-to-face friendship. And that's why Moses was transformed by the time we see him in Exodus chapter 33. My friends, 
It's not just knowing the details, they're important. It's not just knowing the principles, they are vitally important when it comes to being the man or woman of God that we ought to be. But there's a factor that we have lost in these last few decades, and that is that God, our great God, our leader, the one who is developing us, the one who has called us, is one who wants to intimately know us and to manifest his presence spiritually on a regular basis. And it makes all the difference when you see God not just up there, but when you see God face to face as a man speaketh with his friend. If Moses could have it happen in that Old Testament dispensation way back then, what about us with the completed revelation of the Word of God in the indwelling Spirit of God? Every person in this room this morning can learn what it means to have a deep, intimate, personal relationship with their God and know the presence of God. I'm very thankful for the example that I saw as a child. I've mentioned this oftentimes, but it was definitely a part of my heritage. My father's mother was very uh, much a typical woman of uh, the world back in that time. When she was a, uh, younger, she had met with God, was saved gloriously. She was saved, by the way, out of a hyper-Calvinist home. And, uh, and they wouldn't let her get saved. And so uh, uh, she... Uh, finally couldn't help herself, and she trusted the Lord. <laughs> and the, the dear wife of the hyper-Calvinist father, uh, uh, finally, after she saw her daughter get saved, and she said, that does it. God elect me right now, you know. <laughs> and he did, and he did. Uh, it's an amazing thing. So, uh, so she did have a real stirring in her younger years and met with the Lord, but her husband, a Dutchman, um, I had become fairly wealthy down in Miami, and they were doing real well. And God took it all away uh, through the land bust, and then the depression, and then the hurricane. All of those things occurred within a matter of a few years. And that was the best thing that could ever happen, and she began to seek God. And uh, S.D. Gordon, some of you know that name. We've mentioned that before. The book, Quiet Talks on Prayer, is just revolutionary. I think we have it out there, and I would certainly urge you to get that. It just will help you. But uh, she was in a conference with him and other great men of God, and she learned how to meet with God. And I'm telling you, we're all here today because our grandmother knew what it meant to walk with God. I remember as a junior hire, you know, typical junior hire, I was down in Miami visiting her, and for some reason the family was gone, and I was left alone. I guess I was taking a nap or something. I came out of the room, and my grandmother didn't, I don't think she even realized I was there. And she was sitting in her chair and she was talking to someone. <laughs> Tears streaming down her face. And I know there wasn't a physical glow, but it sure seemed like it. There was the presence of Almighty God. I remember distinctly as a junior high boy, this is a sacred place. I mean, it went deep within me. She was talking to someone I didn't really know. Now, I knew I was saved, and God had worked in my heart, but I did not know God. And I'll never for, for, I never forgot that. And often my grandmother 
whether I liked it or not, would sit me down and tell me about the Lord, and she'd just rejoice, and it's just a glorious time, and all the things, those things really affected me. And then when I was in high school, uh, we had moved from Durango, Colorado, to uh, uh, semi-inner city Chicago. That is a shock. If anything will cause rebellion in a kid, that'll do it, I'm telling you. Uh, and so I went from having my own horse working on a ranch to, I don't know what I was doing in Chicago. But anyway, I, I learned to love it. But anyway, in those interim years, it was, it was a struggle. And uh, at age 15, my parents were going on a three-week trip to the Bible lands and to, I think, 13 countries. And, and so she calls my dad up a couple of weeks before the trip, and she says, Wayne needs to go with you. And my dad agreed. He said, it'd be great, if he, but it's impossible. I don't have the money, plus it's too late now. Back in those days, you didn't get tickets, switch tickets. You didn't get passports. Nothing was fast. And she said, nothing's too hard for God. She called back in a day, and she said, I got it. He's going. Now, my dad knew when she said that something was going to happen, but this was impossible. And I, I heard about it, and I knew Grandma got her prayers answered, but it was impossible. Well, she kept asking my dad if he was doing anything about it. There was nothing for him to do. We got two days before uh, the time to go, and uh, she called again. What's happening? She said, we got it. I mean, God's told me he's going. And uh, my dad said, well, you know. Well, later that day, um, my dad uh, found out uh, there through the, I was in a public high school, and they told me to go out. My dad was there waiting for me. And I said, Dad, what are you here for? I mean, that was very unusual. I thought something bad had happened. And uh, he said, we're going down to the federal building. Why is that? The pass you can get your passport today. Uh, we've been able to expedite. Well, how can, how can I go? And he said, one of the men died. He was a very influential man. Not one of the men died, but one of the men in, on the trip, his wife was near death. And uh, he was able to work it out. And in a matter of hours, I was on my way to, to Amsterdam, Netherlands. And uh, in those three weeks, God did a change in my heart. I heard a great message by Dr. Ed Nelson on the resurrection there at the, at the tomb. And that began to work. And in about three days, I fully surrendered. My grandma knew the presence of God. She knew the presence of God. I remember as a senior in high school, we were in a real difficult spot as the new church uh, had been started out in the suburbs. And we had 20,000 that we needed by Monday, and it was Saturday. And um, uh, back then, that was a lot of money. And I remember again, my grandmother called Dad and said, don't worry, we got it. You know? And so we had a, uh, an all-night prayer meeting. We probably didn't need to have it because she already got it. But anyway, <laughs> uh, it was good for us to have the all-night prayer meeting. And so I'll never forget that morning, an old railroad engineer from the city church uh, we had the two locations going, and he called my dad, and he said, I, what's going on? Do you guys have a need there in the suburban location? He said, I couldn't sleep uh, in the middle of the night. Of course, we were praying. Uh, he said, God woke me up and told me to give you $20,000, <laughs> and the need was met. Well, folks, there's a personal God Amen. who we can meet with personally. Amen. It's a very real thing. And as we think about the needs of the hour and our own development and the leadership that God wants us to have, we need to understand that we're not in this alone. We have fellowship with the I am that I am. So if you haven't turned there yet, turn with me to 
Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. We'll begin looking at the notes now. Arby Jones held a meeting in Rose. The Spirit, this is in, uh, uh, in Wales, the Spirit had become very real to him. And his entire ministry had changed the year before. He stated to a correspondent for the Liverpool Post, if I had been asked a month ago whether a revival was probable in Wales, I should have answered no. Nothing would be done to disturb the prevailing apathy. But you see, Jones had come into a personal relationship as a believer with God. Stuart goes on to report, he himself a great revivalist, he says, How be it, in Rose, right from the very beginning, the professing Christians were broken down before God and began to remove the hindrances in their lives to the full surrender to Christ and the reception of the Spirit in His fullness. After this, the floodgates of heaven were opened and the Spirit was poured out mightily. And then adds, that a what uh, Wrexham paper said that the whole district is in the grip of an extraordinary spiritual force which shows no sign of relaxing its hold. My friend, when God's presence is realized, everything changes. The church in Wales was dead as a doornail. And yet there had been prayer for several years here in America that had affected the Welsh preachers such as Arby Jones in Wales. And he came into a genuine personal walk with God that transformed his life and others' lives were transformed. And as a result, people came into a personal relationship with Christ. And so I want us to ask the question, how did Moses go from not believing he could do anything there in Exodus chapter 3 to being the man in Exodus chapter 33 that spoke as a friend with God face to face, God's own testimony about him? Well, that's what I want us to look at. You see, God's desire, folks, is for all of his children, by the way, not just preachers, not just special spiritual people, but all of his children to know him intimately, who he really is. H.A. Ironside, a man who my dad dearly loved, who, who walked with God, says, Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. He never refuses to meet the one who sincerely seeks his face. Surely we can say with David, it is good for me to draw near to God, Psalm 73, 28. To fail to avail ourselves of this privilege is to wrong our own souls, souls as well as to dishonor Him who invites us to draw nigh. But if we would thus approach Him, we must come with clean hands and a pure heart. For He detests hypocrisy and double-mindedness. We must come too with chastened spirits so we... Read, be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. We need to draw nigh to the Lord. So here in this passage in uh, uh, Exodus chapter 33, you know the background, but let me just quickly restate it. Uh, the 
Israelites had been in a terrible place of paganism and unbelief there in the land of Egypt. But they still had that sense that they were God's covenant people. God had taken Moses out of that situation and for these 40 years had broken him and brought him into a place where he could hear uh, from the Lord. And and it was uh, amazing what God did with the plagues, with the opening of the Red Sea, and then the miracles as they were starting off in their journey. And they come now to Mount Sinai. And in this place, not only do they, you see the glory of God giving His Word and showing forth His presence, but we also see the tragic revelation of how the world was still in them. And how Moses handles all of this is very instructive about why he knew the presence of God. R. Allen Cole says about uh, Exodus 32, 1 to uh, 33, this is a very vivid passage showing that the spiritual experience of Moses was not shared by his people. Even Aaron comes out badly. But he had neither, but he had neither the vision at Sinai as a shepherd, nor had he the unique preparation in Egypt that Moses had had. Only Joshua seems to share the mind of Moses, as does at a lower, lowlier level the tribe of Levi. Now, let me just say this, that oftentimes, pastors, we feel like we're in that situation. But because Moses continued to walk with God, God saved Israel. And it's very encouraging now, Israel, as Exodus 32.1 says, if you, go, if you look at that, up, make us gods. Uh, who shall go before us? And patience, as Cole says, lay at the root of the sin of Israel. They cannot wait. Where has Moses gone? They must have visible gods. We've got to have our needs met as everybody else has them met. They did not see things spiritually. Well, in this background, let's look at several, I think, very important factors in this transformation of Moses so that he could lead in the transformation of an entire nation. And it's, it's wonderful. First of all, he embraced God's cause. He embraced God's cause. I'm actually going to ask you, I've got you to the main passage there, but if you hold your finger and just go back a few pages to chapter 19, they had just come into the wilderness of Sinai and had come there at Mount Sinai. And we read in verse 3 of chapter 19, And Moses went up unto God, and, and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bare you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then shall ye be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. 
he understood that God had a glorious purpose in taking this one nation and making them the example of what God can do in the lives of a people and to show forth God's will for the human race that he had created. Through the nation of Israel would come the Word of God. Through the nation of Israel would come an understanding of how God relates to mankind. And I believe to a great degree Moses had embraced that cause. Now folks, one of the things on the front end, if we're going to learn what it means to truly be in the presence of God and have a personal relationship with Him in the depths of our soul, we need to get it what our lives are about and what God is doing in this day. We need to embrace in our day what God is doing through the New Testament local church, the body of Christ. God has great things. The whole focus, folks, of this planet is not on Moscow or Beijing or Washington, D.C. It is on a place like this right now. This is where heaven is focused. And I believe that with all my heart. Every local church, Jesus Christ is the head if they're a New Testament church. And God is ready to do mighty things around the world. He means to reach this generation uh, in uh, this entire world in this generation. That's His purpose. Look at what happened in the first generation after the resurrection of Jesus Christ and His ascension. And He hasn't changed that purpose whatsoever. And so it is vital that we have deep in our souls the cause that God has, that we're loyal to Him above our cause and our desires and what we're trying to achieve. We read uh, Spence here and XL say, Now therefore, uh, instead of asking the simple question, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, God graciously entices the Israelites to their own advantage by a most loving promise. If they will agree to obey His voice and accept and keep His covenant, then they shall be to Him a peculiar treasure, a precious possession to be esteemed highly and carefully guarded from all that might injure it. And this preciousness they shall not share with others on equal terms, but enjoy exclusively. It shall be theirs above all people. No other nation on earth shall hold the position which they shall hold, or be equally precious in God's sight." All the, church, all the earth is His, and so all nations are His in a certain sense. But this shall not interfere with the special Israelite prerogative. They alone shall be His peculiar people. That's an amazing thing. By the way, they still are. Israel is going to be coming back on the scene. And God's going to save them as in a day uh, at His coming. What a glorious thing. They will be the head of the nations in the millennium. God keeps His word. But today we are the body of Christ. We're His bride. And so we need to understand that uh, we must be totally devoted to what is important to God. Moses understood God's purpose. God's purpose for His people. That they should be a peculiar people. Uh, verse 6, the first part of it, and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. Titus 2.14 says, Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. 
The commentary that we just read goes on, zeal for good works is the indispensable mark of God's peculiar people. The inseparable fruit of the redemption and purification which is by the blood of Jesus Christ. Moses was all in for God's purpose. Let me just say, it'll all be sort of a mystery to you about this matter of really knowing God if you're not all in to His purpose. And this is obviously the key battle that we face and our people face. And for every person here, God is ready to meet with you. God is ready to show Himself spiritually through His Word and, and illumine our hearts and, and commune with us. But we've got to have His heart. As best we know how, we have to embrace that cause. And so he understood that. And, and he was burdened to know the heart of God, to receive the truth. Burdened to receive the truth. If you look at verse, the latter part of verse 6, these are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. You find uh, over and over in, um, in the uh, working of Moses in this matter of communicating with the people of Israel. He spoke unto them what? The Word of God. You think about it. There's very few words that he says that aren't given to him directly by God. He wanted to know what God said. And you say, well, that's something. He, God spoke to him uh, verbally. Folks, this is just as marvelous. Amen. In fact, this is the perfect inspired Word of God just as much as hearing from God directly. And then the Holy Spirit will apply it to our hearts in a perfect manner. We are, we are not inferior in the sense of our opportunity. We actually have a superior opportunity over Moses and the Old Testament saints. And uh, so it's very important for us to understand that not only do we need to be all in when it comes to the matter of the cause of Christ today, but we need to know what God is saying about that cause. Psalm 119.2, Blessed are they that keep His testimonies and that seek Him with the whole heart. Arthur Flake is a name you may not know. We know it around here because uh, he, was, uh, he motivated Baptists in the early part of the 1900s to have small group Bible studies for their Sunday school. And this is how many, especially in the South, how many of the churches were built and uh, where there was genuine active ministry going on and development in people's lives. And we're highly indebted to him here. We've had for over 30 years now small group Bible studies in our Sunday school. And we're very thankful. And so we know the name Arthur Flake. But the key to him is found in this uh, testimony from him. When I first became a Christian, I lived in New York City, and I, did, and I did feel lonely. I had to give up the crowd I was running with and form new friendships. I was advised by the man who led me to Christ to read the Bible. After business hours, I would go to my room and read my Bible, often for hours at a time. Though I did not understand all I read, and still do not, I did understand much that I read, and it made me feel that I was not alone." but that I had a dear friend who cared for me. Today I read the same identical verses and chapters I read then. Although I've read many of them hundreds of times, they are, I believe, sweeter today than they were then. What other book can one read with such 
results. But the thing I wanted to point out, folks, is we can talk all we want to about developing that close personal relationship with God, but you cannot not without saturating yourself with the Word of God. It's absolutely essential. And the thing that was key for Moses is that he wanted to know God's Word directly to him, and he gave it clearly and courageously and obeyed it. I mean, it was precious to him. And so he was all in, he was committed to the cause, but it came by the listening to the Word of God. And then, uh, see there, he led others. He led others to covenant with God. He, not, he didn't want to be the only one all in. And he wanted other people to have the joy. In fact, you see it later in the book of Numbers where some others started to prophesy. And he says, I wish that everybody had the kind of position I have. I want everyone to know the joy of walking with God. That's the whole purpose of my leadership. You could just tell, in fact, that wonderful testimony of Moses in Numbers chapter 12 that he was the meekest man on the face of the earth. What a testimony by Almighty God. He wasn't about himself. He, he genuinely wanted others to have that same joy. Look at verse 7. And Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before their faces all these words which the Lord commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses returned the words of the people unto the Lord. And so at that point he, had, he saw response on the part of the people. However, as you know, one good service doth not a church make. Right, pastors? You think after that revival meeting, we're in. Man, I'm telling you, we are on top of the world until Monday uh, of the next week. And uh, reality sets back in as you have the continued discipleship of your people and yourself, by the way. And God continues to work, and certainly Moses had to face that. All right, the first thing there is embracing the cause. And number two, he exposed false gods. Now, here was the crisis. I'm not going to go through all the verses here. We know them. But uh, we have the people becoming impatient, and you've got to realize the world was still in them. Their coping mechanisms were still there. Their desires were still there. They were not walking with God. They were learning slowly but surely about the power of God. You know, it's an interesting to watch the ten plagues, to have the Red Sea part, to have water out of a rock by miraculous uh, touch, to have uh, food given to you every day by God miraculously. And yet, not know their God. Now, God wants to do great and miraculous things today. Make no mistake about it. But, th but that is not going to be the answer for a walk with God. It has to be an understanding of who He is and yielding to His purpose and learning to love Him. And the problem is that idolatry was still in the hearts of the people and so, they, you need to, we've got to understand idolatry. We've got to understand that it is a bigger deal with us. 
And we'll go back and look at the first few verses in a moment. But look with me at verse 7. And the Lord said unto this is chapter 32. Chapter 32, verse 7. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go get thee down, for thy people which thou broughtest up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made them a molten calf, and have worshipped it, and have sacrificed thereunto, and said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which have brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people." Folks, the natural state of man's heart is idolatry and rebellion against God. Here you have the creation of man, then the fall of Adam and Eve, and then you have the flood. I don't think we even want to see what it was like before the flood. It was bad. We're beginning to see it. Then you had the Tower of Babel. You think you'd learn you know, your, your family tree got lopped off on the top. You know, it was gone. I mean, uh, uh, and so you don't even know who your ancestors were. You got to just go back to Noah. I mean, that, uh, you'd think that would make an impression upon them. But I'm telling you, that rebellion at the Tower of Babel was terrible. We're going to build a city. That was their main thing. They were going to go independent of God. And that tower was for demonic worship. And they knew God. They knew about him, I should say. And so it is the natural sense. And for believers, when we're not walking in the Spirit, idolatry is still a problem. In fact, the New Testament says so. 1 John 5 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Colossians 3 5, the last part of the verse, covetousness, which is idolatry. Idolatry is putting our trust in anything other than the Lord. Ooh. We live that way all the time. But why doesn't God seem real to me? It's because you have other gods. And this world has a lot of gods. Just turn on your iPad, go to work. Go to Starbucks and get your coffee. Coping. That's how, how I feel good. You think about day by day all the little things we do for dopamine hits. Americans are masters at it. How to have enjoyment in life without God, even though they're believers? It's a big problem. I'm not saying, well, Starbucks I have problems with, but I won't get into that. Uh, just talk to Dr. Jim. He, he has two options. He has Dunkin' Donuts if he's in the States, and then he has Tim Hortons if he's in Canada or Michigan or wherever they might have him, right? In fact, he actually, this is part of his theology. <laughs> you got to watch out. Don't say anything against Dunkin' Donuts, or he, you might see him turn red. He turns red real quickly. Uh, but uh, no, anyway, but I do think he has a bit of idolatry here. But I, I'm going <laughs> to. Now, I have counseled him. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, I, stand, I stand here very smug and pious, you know. I, I decided some years back I didn't like the up and down of caffeine. So uh, 
I went to water, so that's good. And uh, that doesn't give you a dopamine hit, but it does meet the need. So, uh, uh, all right. But anyway, honestly, though, I'm joking about some of these things, but there's a lot of things we put our trust in. And uh, the coping mechanisms, the desire for success, material, um, material possessions, on and on we can go. And folks, you look back from the 70s through now, no culture has ever had such widespread prosperity. And it has not helped the church. Now, I'm thankful for the freedom in America. I'm thankful for the good things. But my dad said, you know, American believers have one of the greatest opportunities to show that they really love the Lord in the midst of prosperity to put Him first. He said, you know, when you're in a bad situation, um, there's good reasons to trust the Lord. But when you are living a comfortable life and yet you sacrifice and give all to Christ, he said, I think there's a special acknowledgement for that. And he was very serious when he said that. And I do believe, what an opportunity. Now, I know Americans and American believers are a little bit uh, walking uh, with trepidation as we ought to. And we realize things won't be. But you know, before they get there, why don't we walk with God? Amen. Why don't we get rid of the idols? Why don't we get to trusting Him alone? Why don't we know Him face to face as a man speaketh to a friend? Why, not, why can't the deepest needs of our heart be met by our God? That's the way God created us. That's why He came. That's what the whole, whole Word of God is about. And uh, idolatry God hates because it robs him of his glory and it robs him of the relationship that he so deeply desires to have with each one of us. And one of the great problems of idolatry that you find here is redefining the God of the Bible. Um, If you look with me at verse 5, after the... uh, Well, actually, let's go back to verse 4. And he received them, all of the different earrings and so forth, in their hand, and fashioned it with a graving tool after he had made a golden calf. And they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord, Jehovah God. I am telling you, I'm amazed God did not strike him dead. What a long-suffering God. But before we get too hard on Aaron, evangelicalism has redefined the God of the Bible. Fundamentalism at times has redefined the God of the Bible. Why, you know, I used to wonder as a kid, why in the world would Israel be so dumb, excuse the expression, my wife sitting on the front row, I can't use the word stupid. But uh, uh, be so dumb as uh, to go after idols. I mean, and to, and to have all of those, the judgments of God. And, you know, I mean, the book of Judges it was for me as a kid depressing to the core. It's, it still is as an adult, I'll be honest with you. Uh, what a revelation of our problems there. But why in the world? I'll tell you, listen, it wasn't just worshiping idols. It was entering into the sensuality, into uh, the living of the cultural ways of enjoying yourself and calling it religion, calling it something that 
would cover the conscience. And so worshiping other gods that tolerated sensuality and worldly practices and all kinds, and they had wrong music, the whole business, and they would call it religion. The Israelites liked that. See, they came out of that in Egypt. And so uh, this was really convenient. And Aaron, just amazing to me that he said, let's have a feast to Jehovah God, the great I am that I am. By the way, you remember last night, um, what was the ground around the burning bush called? Holy ground. He had to put off his sandals. He couldn't go any further. Again, I'm amazed at God's uh, wonderful long-suffering there. And of course, as I say here, it allows for increased fleshly living. Where there is no vision, the people uh, perish. You know, it is so tragic today that when we redefine God as a God that tolerates that which He does not tolerate. By the way, God's grace is wonderful, but God's grace is for the purpose of enabling us to please Him and live lives that we could not live without His power. Amen. Liberty is to be freed from sin so that we can love God and be all that we should be. Oh, how these terms have been redefined so that we can have a worship of Jesus and do what we want to do. I'm telling you, modern evangelicalism is fairly close to Exodus chapter 32. Now, we would see it as sort of gross as we hear the explanation about how they uh, sat down to eat and to drink and then rose up to play. But in the name of the Lord, today drinking is uh, trying to be substantiated. And other kinds of practices, going to entertainment that we know is sensual, and even showing it on screens in a church for a church service. And on and on I could go. I'm talking about those that would like to call themselves fundamental. And uh, I would like to say there is a parallel here. You know, Spurgeon got it way back. It's very interesting. I love this quote. Uh, I hardly like to hear the high praises of God sung to the tune of a comic song or of a dance. Hmm. There is a certain congruity about uh, things that must be observed, and some good music may have associated with it such queer ideas. Uh, they, by the way, that word has been stolen now today, but it was used back then. Ideas that we had better let it alone till those associations have died out, lest while we are uttering holy words, some people may, may be reminded by the tune of unholy things. That's wow, that's a century and a half ago. And oh my, that would be mild. And yet, uh, you know, I'm amazed. How many dear people that start coming to this church begin to realize what the music that they were having in their worship, what that was doing to their spiritual life. I wish I could bring some up and give you testimony. It's pretty amazing. And, uh, and yet we capitulate to that. But let's just get to the personal aspect, folks. Idolatry. What are we depending upon? And why, how can we actually defend our lifestyle when it really isn't a serious walk with God at times? Why do we have some of the goals that we have? How can we watch that entertainment? How can we do the things that we do with technology? How can we communicate like we do on social media? 
How can we put things before our eyes that we know God is not pleased with and somehow feel okay about it? How can we spend so much time in material uh, work, uh, getting material things that the work of God is left out? How can we listen to music on a regular basis because it's just background music and not be grieved by it and, and realize that if, we, if there's any possibility to get rid of it, we ought to because it's not right. Folks, we're frogs in a kettle and we're about to burn up. And uh, it is important for us to see it. So, Moses, why did he speak face to face with God as a friend? He was all in and he agreed with God that his glory and is, should be utmost and that he should only depend upon his God for life. And that makes the difference. So, we got to confess idolatry and conquer it by the grace of God. If you look with me at verse 25 here in uh, chapter 32. And when Moses saw that the people were naked, for Aaron had made them naked under their shame among their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him. And he said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Put every man his sword by his side and go in and out from gate to gate throughout the camp and slay every man his brother and every man his companion and every man his neighbor. And the children of Levi did according to the word of Moses and there fell of the people that day about 3,000 men. For Moses had said, Consecrate yourselves today to the Lord, even every man upon his son and upon his brother, that he may bestow upon you a blessing this day. Now, folks, we're fairly familiar with that passage. But you've got men having to kill their son, their brother. I take this literally. That was tough. I mean, there was a sobriety that went across Israel. God as we know earlier in the chapter, was about to destroy Israel. And the Lord said, if I'm going to save Israel, Moses, you've got to agree with me that I alone receive glory and all idolatry must be stamped out. This must be done even though it is going to be a great heart-rending sacrifice. You know, I'm afraid we're not willing to take the sacrifices to get rid of things out of our life that really are still idolatry. And men that are preachers, we're afraid to preach against those things that are causing our people not to meet with their God. We're afraid of what's going to be recorded. We're afraid of being canceled. So be it. It's only our people that matter. And we've got to continue in a loving but firm and clear and biblical way to proclaim the truth and free ourselves uh, from that which makes God sick. For they'll never walk with God. Oh, Deuteronomy 9 says it very strongly. And the Lord was very angry with Aaron to have destroyed him. And I prayed for Aaron also at the same time. 
And I took your sin, he's preaching here to the new generation about to go with Joshua, the calf which he had made and burnt it with fire and stamped it and ground it very small, even until it was as small as dust, and I cast the dust there into the brook that descended out of the mount. Pretty clear for Moses what he thought about it there. New Testament's pretty strong also. The new man, we are supposed to have our affection, as uh, the first few verses of Colossians 3 says, our affection on those things which are above. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Honestly, I think we need a good old-fashioned confession time about all the things that have kept us from walking with our God. Folks, there is absolutely no excuse for us to not spend major time with God and to serve Him with all of our heart. Anything that takes the glory uh, and, and, and meets our need other than God uh, in a primary way, anything that holds us back from the will of God is idolatry, folks. As Hebert says so clearly there, speaking of that very strong passage in James chapter 4, saying if you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. He says, the world here does not refer to the material creation, but rather to the mass of unredeemed humanity as an egocentric world system that is hostile to God. Its central aim is self-enjoyment and self-aggrandizement in disregard of or in open hostility toward God. Folks, we have no right and we ought to not want to at all capitulate to the world. Amen. Because it's not just all oh, the things that the world does. My friends, it is, an open, it is an open culture of rebellion against our God. And if we love Him and we're walking with Him, there's no place for a love of the world. In fact, if you love the world, as 1 John said, the love of the Father is not in you. So we need to acknowledge areas of wrong dependent desires. I love that statement. I'm sure you've heard it. There came a day when George Mueller died, utterly died. No longer did his own desires, preferences, and tastes come first. He knew that from then on, Christ must be all in all. He said that when he was asked, this is his own quote, the secret for him of the victorious Christian life. Now, we're going to be talking a lot this week about what it means Christ in you. But friends, you've got to die to self first. You've got to understand that He's God, nothing else is. We're not, and the world can't be. And friends, the message against worldliness is, is more important today than it's ever been, and it's not being dealt with. That's right. We need to allow God to deliver us, and He will. Oh, I love that uh, well-known account, Owen Murph, if he talks about it in the Hebrides revival, that's the Lewis Awakening. Uh, he recounts the reaction of men in the barn when Psalm 24 was read. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in the holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation." 
Like words of a flame falling from the lips of a holy God, every word seemed to burn into the very depths of the hearts of the men who gathered to do business with God. Then before the tremendous challenge of this declaration, unhesitatingly they fell to their knees in unreserved dedication and surrendered to God. Here were men who were prepared to meet every demand of God, whatever the personal cost might be that revival might come. That price which hath has never varied throughout the ages, is brokenness before God, an emptying of self in all of its manifestation, and a forsaking of all sin and habit, and total surrender to God and His purposes. Who's going to see God? Who's going to get to talk to Him face to face? Those who have clean hands and a pure heart. It's God that does that, not us. But that's what we've got to be willing for. So it's no accident here, folks, that Moses knew God. Let's look at the third thing here that I think allowed him to be in that kind of position. It's very obvious, but it's very important. He engaged in communion. He engaged in communion with God. Moses was regularly in the presence of God. In chapter 33, after uh, the Lord had made the proclamation that he was going to send his angel. He was not going to destroy Israel, uh, but he wasn't going to go with them. You have Moses meeting with the Lord. If you look with me at verse 7. And Moses took the tabernacle. Remember, this is not the tabernacle as prescribed in the law. That had not yet been given. This was a tent of meeting with God where the pillar uh, would be above it. And pitched it without the camp, afar off from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of the congregation. And it came to pass that everyone which sought the Lord went out unto the tabernacle of the congregation which was without the camp. And it came to pass when Moses went out unto the tabernacle that all the people rose up and stood every man at his tent door and looked after Moses until he was gone into the tabernacle. And it came to pass as Moses entered into the tabernacle, the cloudy pillar descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle, and the Lord talked with Moses. Now, I believe this is referring to the event when God talks with Moses about this situation. However, it does seem in the grammar that this was a regular occurrence of Moses. In fact, I'm sure that's what that is here. And so on a regular basis, and that's A there, Moses was regularly in the presence of God. Now, folks, this was making all the difference. Don't look for one experience here and there. It's very dangerous, and there's counterfeits all over the place. You need a regular, very systematic time in which you put all other things aside to meet with your God. Now, actually, we should be God conscious all the time. The Spirit of God will do that for us, Ephesians chapter 5. But uh, we need to take that time alone. And we suggest for our folks, let's take an hour with God. We have the time if we have the right priorities. By the way, when idolatry goes, you got the time? Because you'd be surprised how much of that is taking your time. But we're not willing to make the hard choices. We waste time here and there. We're distracted all over the place. We have to shut down things and rearrange our priorities so that God can bless. The only things that happen in your life are things you're determined by the grace of God to see happen. And it's going to be God's grace. General Havelock rose at four if the hour for marching was six rather than lose the precious privilege 
of communion with God before setting out. That was Dwight L. Moody in Prevailing Prayer. E.M. Bounds, who we all know about prayer, said, The men who have done the most for God in this world have been early on their knees. He who fritters away the early morning, its opportunity and freshness in other pursuits than seeking God will make poor headway. And he says in the same book, If God is not first in our thoughts and efforts in the morning, He will be the last place the remainder of the day. We'll be living for other things. And so this was very key, folks. He didn't learn his, he didn't develop his relationship with God in one or two or three huge incidents. He was developing a friendship. Now we all know it takes time and quality communication to develop a friendship. And that's exactly what Moses was doing here on a regular basis. So when this crisis came, and this was a crisis... This was the turning point here. If the law was going to be given and God was going to form this nation into uh, a theocracy, at this moment of crisis, he was able to respond right because he had been meeting with God. He knew exactly what to do. Very important. And you see his heart in interceding for his people. You see, those who uh, are all in, who embrace the cause... And understand what that means are those then who are praying the heart of God for others. If you look back at chapter 32, after Moses realized what was going down uh, there in the valley um, and what Aaron had done and the people had done, and how when God told him about it, we read um, in verse 10. Now therefore let me alone, God's talking here, that my wrath may wax hot against them, and that I may consume them, and I will make of thee a great nation. And Moses besought the Lord his God and said, Lord, why doth thy wrath wax hot against thy people, which thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Wherefore should the Egyptians speak and say, For mischief did he bring them out to slay them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from thy fierce wrath, and repent of this evil against thy people." Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, thy servants, to whom thou swearest by thine own self, and saidst unto them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of will I give unto your seed, and they shall inherit it forever. And I love this, and the Lord repented. He, he changed his mind. God responds to the will of man. Repented of the evil which he had thought to do unto his people. But then the intercession after the awful judgment that had to come upon the people. We read in verse 30. And it came to pass on the morrow that Moses said unto the people, Ye have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up unto the Lord peradventure. I shall make an atonement for your sin. And Moses returned unto the Lord and said, Oh, this people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold. Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book, which thou hast written. And the Lord said unto Moses, 
Whosoever hath sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. You see the heart of God here? You can hear a little bit of the voice of Jesus Christ here. You sense the heart that only God can give. You see that meeting day by day. That continual surrendering and dealing with anything in his own heart that was idolatry. Knowing his God and being jealous for him and understanding that God's glory was everything and his cause for Israel was very important for his glory. And also the love that God has for his people. This was miraculously in the heart of Moses and he was willing to lose his eternal life for the salvation of Israel. Paul had the same heart. Folks, intercession makes a difference. Fatalism has just gripped evangelicalism. Doesn't matter what your theology is, it's still there. The Bible makes it very clear this is the confidence that we have of Him. If we ask anything according to His will, He heareth us. And if we know that He hears us, we know we have the petitions we desired of Him. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye abide in me and my words abide in you, ye shall ask anything and it shall be done. My friends, God means what he says. But the whole key is having the heart of God. Having his burden, knowing what he's thinking. And my friends, uh, we would see a whole lot more people saved that we know. And we'd see a whole lot more Christians come into revival if we would go just from nice little devotions to actual intercession on a daily basis believing God. I, I really think this is one of the biggest keys. We could see unleashed. God is just waiting for someone to agree with Him. Prayer is coming into union with God and, and asking Him to do what is that which is on His heart already. And when there is that kind of intercession, the God of heaven moves. We can come boldly to the throne of grace. He will work. I love the testimony of Hudson Taylor. On a day I shall never forget, when I was about 15 years of age, because my mother was absent from home, I had a holiday, and in the afternoon looked through my father's library to find some book with which to while away the hours. I turned over a basket of pamphlets and selected from among them a gospel tract which looked interesting. I sat down to read the little book in an utterly unconcerned state of mind. He didn't have any heart for God. Little did I know at the time what was going on in the heart of my mother 80 miles away. She rose from dinner and with an intense yearning for the conversion of her boy, she went to her room and turned the key in the door, resolved not to leave until her prayers were answered. Hour after hour did she plead for me until at length she was constrained to praise God for that which his spirit taught her had been accomplished. In the meantime, I had taken up this little track and while reading was struck with the sentence, the finished work of Christ. The thought passed through my mind. Why does the author use this expression? Immediately the words, it is finished, came to mind. What was finished? I replied, a full and perfect atonement for sin. Christ died for our sins. As light flashed in my soul by the Spirit, there was nothing to be done but to fall down on one's knees and accepting this Savior and His salvation to praise Him forever. When mother came home a fortnight later, I was the first to meet her at the door to tell her I had good news. I can almost feel her arms around my neck as she said, I know, my boy, I have been rejoicing for a fortnight. 
you will agree with me that it would be strange indeed if I were not a believer in the power of prayer. <laughs> we might not have had what happened in China had it not been for that mother that knew how to intercede. It was the will of God for God to work in Hudson Taylor. But that wasn't automatic. Folks, the burdens you have in your church, in your family, in your lives, there's a God in heaven who's ready to work. He cares more than you care. And folks, we've got to get his heart. We've got to be jealous for his cause. We've got to get out of ourselves and, and what we're worried about and, let, and letting anxiety and all the things that we want, we need to give those to God. And my friends, when we get into the presence of God and get his heartbeat for others and then see God work, yes. it just listen, it's glorious. Amen. But it's for, his, it's for his glory. Today's church desperately needs this type of intercession. If not... The different moves toward God we see today will be short-lived. Number four, emphatic about the need for God's presence. He didn't want to just know about God. He did not even just want to know the words of God, though that was extremely crucial for everything. He didn't just want to go through an exercise of devotions. He wanted to have the presence of God, for God is a real person. And we are made for God. He is spirit, and we must worship him in spirit and in truth. Moses knew, I have to have God. And so Moses wanted more than the promise of protection. God did, gave that. He didn't destroy the people because of inter intercession. That's wonderful. And he says, I'll send one of my mighty angels, probably Michael the archangel, who, who was going to go. And that's pretty powerful. But he knew without the presence of God, all was in vain. Folks, today we want God's benefits, but not necessarily his presence. We want the good things that God gives even spiritually. But we're not, not necessarily really all that upset if we don't meet with Him. How many parents have done many things for their children only to be grieved later in their older age that their children do not spend time with them? What about our God? But for us, we need to understand the need for total dependence on God alone. Just preached Sunday morning on John 15. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me continues in dependent relationship in me and I in him. That wonderful unity of relationship we have. The same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me ye can do nothing. He desired the personal reality of God's presence. Let me just say this. No ministry, no family, no cause for Christ can go forward if the presence of God is not there. Amen. The people don't need our, our abilities, pastors. They need Jesus. They got, they got to hear from Him. They've actually got to see Him in us. Well, that's sobering. Our churches need His presence. Where two or three are gathered, He's promised to be here. We need to pray that that reality. Listen, 
our people coming out of a dark world, all they need is about one minute in the church family and they're okay because God's here. And then the word of God goes forth and it has power. I'm telling you, that's how, how the work of God uh, solidifies. And so he wasn't at all satisfied to live without the presence of God. He wanted the personal reality. Moses was convinced God's presence was the key for God's purposes to be established. Look with me here in chapter 33 as we go back to that. Uh, After he had been interceding with God and then just meeting with him there in the tent of meeting, we read in verse 17, And the Lord said unto Moses, I will do this thing also that thou hast spoken, for thou hast found grace in my sight, and I know thee by name. He said, "I'll, I'll have my presence with you. And he said, this is Moses, I beseech thee, Now Moses goes even further, show me thy glory. I want the whole thing, Lord. I don't want to just know you're there in the cloud. I want you to show me your glory. I mean, I I need your presence, Lord. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And look down at... um, Verse 22, and it shall come to pass while my glory passeth by that I will put thee in the cliff of the rock and will cover thee with my hand while I pass by. And I will take away mine hand and thou shalt see my back parts, but my face shall thou not see. What a request. But God answered that request. And he'll answer it for each one of us. C.H. Spurgeon This seems to me to be the greatest stretch of faith that I have ever heard or read of. Had Moses requested a fiery chariot to whirl him up to heaven, had he asked to cleave the watered floods and and drown the chivalry of a nation, had he prayed to the Almighty to send fire from heaven to consume whole armies, a parallel to his prayer might possibly have been found. But when he offers this petition, I beseech thee, show me thy glory, He stands alone, a giant among giants, a colossus even in those days of mighty men. This is the highest faith ever gained. And that's where God wants us to go. Look at 2 Corinthians 3.17. Now the Lord is that spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with open face beholding as in a glass, what? The glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. And in that passage, we're dealing with Moses and the glory he had in his face because he had met with God. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. How long can you go without knowing the presence of God? How much can you live life fairly contentedly without having reveled in his presence? Let me just say, folks, I don't care what problems you may be facing. I don't care what pressures are on you. When spiritually you see Jesus, you're okay. You're just okay. Why is it some Christians just have such a calm demeanor? Well, when you meet the Lord... When you have that calming, stirring in your soul, 
when you have the wisdom as to how God is working, when you just have his love expressed to you, you're okay. You're okay. Your life can't be the same. There ought to be that glow of the Lord about you, even if there may be tears in your eyes. May I submit to you, even though some days we don't feel as good as others, and some, de- some devotional times may not be as thrilling truth-wise as others because of just what you're covering, may I submit to you that every day we ought to be in the presence of God. That's the consistent Christian life. There are no ups and downs. You may emotionally have some struggles just because of the human realities, but spiritually you can keep moving forward if you actually have the presence of God as a reality in your life. And let me just finish with number five here. He did experience God's glory. Wonderful, wonderful revelation. You could spend hours on this, but let me just touch this as a conclusion here. God did as he promised. He made his glory pass by Moses as he stood in a cliff in the rock and covered him with the hand as he passed by. And when he had passed by, took away his hand and allowed Moses to look after him and see a glorious and transcendent vision. A vision so bright and radiant and so real that the light which streamed from it settled on Moses' face and remained there. And uh, what a wonderful thing. God promised that. And let's now look at chapter uh, 34 here. I'm going to just jump right down to verse 5. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's our God. See, that's, what, that's what's going to, I want you to get this. That's what you're going to see. And that's what I see whenever the Spirit of God is able to manifest Christ to us because we're fellowshipping with Him. And I am telling you, it is so thrilling to know that's our God. He's a personal God. Hey, He's a personal God. It is the divine person behind the name that one seeks when invoking a divine name. Moses had sought to know that Yahweh, Jehovah, would be with him. And Israel, as they left Sinai to head toward the promised land, and knowing Yahweh, knowing who he really was and what he would be like in reference to his people, was what Moses craved. Yahweh's self-proclamation would provide that. And here uh, he says in this passage, when in revealing himself, he calls himself the Lord. I am Jehovah. And so, he is a personal God. He is as much a person as we are a person. He's not a force. Our fellowship is, as John Jowett says, is not with a something, but with a somebody, not with a force, but with a spirit, not with it, but with him. He's the immutable person that loves us. He is our God. He identifies with his people. He is the head of the church in our day. We are his bride. He is our savior. And on and on we could go through all the names given in the New Testament. Well, let's just look in conclusion. He's a compassionate God. Going back to verse 6, merciful, deep-seated feelings, used exclusively of God with one personal exception there in the Old Testament. Folks, he has the deepest of feelings. He is, it isn't some analytical thing. 
He's touched with the feelings of your infirmities. He really is. Are there tears in heaven in the glorified body of Christ? I don't know. But I'm telling you, he feels it as though there were. Uh, our misery calls forth God's mercy. And, uh, and so we, we see this very heart in the life of Christ. Uh, when he saw the multitudes, Matthew 9, 36, I love that passage as familiar as it is. When he saw the multitudes, he was moved. He was deeply moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Jesus wept at Lazarus' grave. He groaned within him the deepest groaning that a human being can have. That was the response of Jesus Christ, Jehovah God, for us in his humanity, which is a revelation of what he is now. And this is what this passage says. I've already alluded to Hebrews 4.15. He is a gracious God. He bestows His unmerited favor on those who have no claim for it. Oh, the grace of God teaches us that, that bringeth salvation appears to all men teaching us, training us, child training us that, to say no to ungodliness and worldly lusts. We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. God is so gracious and He has everything we need to cut through the storm of life. Ship was caught in the teeth of a storm at sea. The passengers were terrified, thinking there was no hope for survival. Then one of the passengers went up on the bridge. He regained his peace and calm, for he saw the captain. His face was beaten by the wind and rain, but his hands firmly held on the, the helm. Holding the ship on its course, he had a smile on his face. <laughs> Our gracious God, when you meet with him, it's okay. I got this. I got this. We're okay. When the God of heaven says it's okay, it's okay. Amen. And that's where the peace of God that passes all understanding comes. Listen, I hate to say it, but anxiety usually comes with, from prayerlessness and not seeing God. I know there's some physical conditions that can cause it, but most of the time, folks, that sense of hopelessness, a long-suffering God, literally uh, long of nostrils. It's an idiom suggesting that the nostrils are slow in reflecting anger. Like I said, Aaron should have been gone. We should be gone. Yes. He's a long-suffering God, a loving God. Kassad is a wonderful term used over and over in the Old Testament. Steadfast love, so many different ways it is uh, talked about. By the love of God we mean that perfection of the divine nature by which He is eternally moved to communicate Himself. It is, however, not a mere emotional impulse, but a rational and voluntary affection having its ground in truth and holiness and its exercise in free choice. A great definition by Thiessen. And the love of God is uh, the will of God to meet our needs. He truly wants the best for us. And He is fully trustworthy in His dealings. And He is the God of truth. He's reliable. You can count on His truth. Um, his Word is true. He is faithful in His dealings with us. And I want you to note this quote by Duncan Campbell, there is a place beyond consecration, note this, there is a place beyond sanctification, and that is the place of implicit confidence in God. It is not easy to stand in that place, but I have known men and women who stood there, and I have seen before my eyes the miracle happen. Beyond consecration is the promise of God, I will pour water upon him that is thirsty, and floods upon the dry ground. Our God is trustworthy. And you can count on Him. He will do what He said He will do. 
He isn't going to leave you out. He isn't going to pass you by. He will reveal his glory to you. In our day, all of these are our promises, and he's a forgiving God. He's a forgiving God. Every time we pray, we ought to leave with a clean heart. Don't walk around with guilt. That's, it's already been paid for. Oh, you need to grieve over your sin, but then that's done. And you need to have that confidence. I quoted last night from A.W. Tozer, the practice of the presence of God consists not of projecting an imaginary object from within his own mind and then seeking to realize its presence. It is rather to recognize the real presence of the one whom all sound theology declares to be already there. He's right here. He's right here. He's seeking you. Draw nigh to him and he will draw nigh to you. How did that man that we see in Exodus 3 turn into the man that we see in Exodus 33? All of these things were key. He gave his heart. He was totally in. He was on the side of God. His heart became God's heart. And my friend, Jesus, Jehovah, became his friend and spoke face to face with him. Every one of us can have that. Folks, we've got to have it in this day.